0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by Sweet Spot for iPhone. It's a great new app. It's free. It's available for your iPhone. It's a simple way to curate and share your favorite experiences, whether that means documenting a recent vacation or keeping track of your favorite restaurants or your city's essential parks, museums, and monuments. Sweet Spot for iPhone is built for you. You can follow friends and family. You can follow your favorite artists, whatever. And then when building your own curations, you can pull in photos from your Instagram, from your Facebook, locations from Google Maps, and then you use tags and text to tell your story. From there, you share via social media. Sweet Spot is a little different from other apps. It wants you to be very thoughtful, And connect places to places and moments to moments Also, it's free You can download Sweet Spot for iPhone right now over at the App Store Sweet Spot for iPhone, it's an app You can download it, go and get it Oh my god
1: You are not alone You have found other people
0: You and I have
1: a friend in common
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done I think it's really beautiful. did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, <laughs> All right. right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is floating in space. This is probably a little bit excessive. How are you? What's happening? I'm Brad Listie. Uh I just woke up. I'm here in Los Angeles. I'm feeling uh, good. I took a nap. I never take naps, so I'm coming back into uh, an awakened state, and I thought I would uh, talk to you. My guest today is Megan Dahm. Her new essay collection, her hotly anticipated new essay collection is called The Unspeakable and Other Subjects of Discussion. It arrives in stores uh, this week from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, and uh, very excited to have her here, and we will be in conversation momentarily. Uh, Before we begin... I do have some mail And uh, this letter comes to me uh, It actually just came through the wires And I thought I would read it It comes from a listener named Mike Who writes Dear Brad I've been a semi-regular listener of the program For a number of years now I write this letter simply to share my appreciation Through the years The show has been a prime source of entertainment Inspiration and motivation It has been my lifeline to the literary world Occasionally you have pondered about your listening audience What follows are a few outtakes From my years of listening I first encountered the, uh, the program having just finished Blake Butler's Score Atlas. I was living in Taiwan at the time, employed as an ESL teacher. I lived in a dormitory-style room in a cement-walled building that amplified sounds like an echo chamber. After binge-listening to the first several episodes, a frustrated floor mate pounded on my door and asked, What the fuck is that voice? <laughs> That was one of many serendipitous poignant and or humorous moments I've experienced while listening to the show over the years. A few summers back I held an other or I had an other people marathon while driving back and forth from my hometown of Mandan, North Dakota and Big Sky, Montana. I listened to near a dozen episodes, which made the voyage in a dilapidated sedan with no air conditioner just bearable in the July heat. One of the standout interviews during my drive was with Ben Fountain in which he articulates how artists in America, and especially writers, have no sanctuary. He goes on to offer his hard-won insights as a writer, driving across the high plains of Montana into the dusk of the setting sun, unemployed, and in a borrowed vehicle. The interview really resonated with me. For the first, but not the last time, I was emotionally moved by a podcast. And and I thought I would uh, add some music here. Why not, right? Uh, I haven't done that in a while. So... Uh, Mike continues, That interview served as an emotional buoy, keeping my spirits afloat through uncertain waters. Half a year later, in what was my strangest employment situation to date, I held a nighttime job as a machine operator at an embroidery and rhinestone pattern manufacturer. Five years in college, and I got a job as a glorified bedazzler. The machine room, or the quote, crystal ballroom, as we like to joke, was hidden down in the subterranean levels of a large office complex. Throughout my shift, lasting from 5 p.m. until midnight, I was the only person not only in the cavernous basement, but the entire building. The machines made hypnotic whirring sounds, and the work itself was mind-numbing and repetitive. Although it sounds like some kind of employment hell, it was actually a strange joy to spend my nights there. Those evenings afforded me solitude, time to think about writing, and ample opportunity to crack out on podcasts during the span of my employment there i caught up on the backlog of other people episodes and then went on to cherish the release of each new installment several times while listening to the show a coincidence has taken place once last december while jogging on a particularly brisk dakota day the sky grayed over a biting wind picked up and it began to snow I was still a good jaunt away from my apartment on the edge of town when it began to blizzard. Within a few moments, I could barely see the horizon. I tucked my hands into the sleeves of my fleece to stay warm. I was listening to the Edwidge Danticat episode, if my memory serves correct, and you made one of your very occasional references to North Dakota in the context of it being remote and brutal uh, a remote and brutal landscape as wind-driven snow pellets lashed my face, and I felt a kind of mortal fear over the sudden blizzard, I chuckled a bit. I chuckled not only at the commonly held conception of my home state, but at, how, at also how true the conception can sometimes be. Another time, more recently, I was walking along the fields out towards the edge of city limits. The episode that day was with an Irish writer whose name I cannot remember. Uh, and here I would interject that I'm, I think he's referring to Ethel Rowan uh, in episode 215 and uh, he continues the two of you were discussing life and death and how they are viewed across cultures i remember the light striking the fields that day was spectacularly dramatic which added extra gravity to the conversation just as the conversation reached some kind of conclusion i happened to look into the field at my right and not 10 feet from me lay the carcass of a fully grown white-tailed deer it appeared so peaceful at first i thought it was sleeping the combination of the heady discussion, the celestial lighting, and the deer carcass culminated into a weird, existential, podcast-induced happening. A few times during the monologue, you've wondered if podcasting is art or merely entertainment. I guess it really comes down to a person's definition of either, uh, or, as you've suggested, maybe podcasting occupies some strange new digital middle ground. Definitions aside, I know this... At times, the interviews inspire, stimulate, and move me. My life is enriched because of them, for whatever that means. Uh, Thanks for putting out a good show. Signed, Mike, from the barren wasteland of North Dakota. Current temperature, 5 degrees and dropping fast. (laughs) And then in the postscript, Mike says, uh, P.S., just listen to episode 312, where in the monologue you address a criticism levied against the show from a writer from Bookslut. Uh, I have to say the monologues are awesome and provide a context for each episode. So thank you, Mike. Uh, That's a great letter. I love that. I love, uh, you know, getting a visual, as I often say, on where my listeners are and how they're listening. And I I particularly love uh, the deer carcass anecdote. That's cool. Uh, And eerie. I don't know what that means. But I do like, uh, you know, I like it when my listeners uh, are out in the wild. And when they uh, come upon dead animals while listening. <laughs> um, so thank you. I appreciate it. And if anybody out there wants to write to me, uh, the address once, you know, as, uh, as I often say, is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So let's get started with the show. Let's get started with Megan Dahm, one of our finest writers, one of our finest uh, essayists. Her new collection is called The Unspeakable and Other Subjects of Discussion. It is available uh, this week from Ferrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Megan Daum, and her book once again is called "The Unspeakable."
1: I didn't. I didn't start denying it until I got to college, and then and I just went to college in upstate New York, not very far away, but. Like everybody was from New York City, and then it was suddenly like, "Oh, you're you're not from the right place."
0: We're like we're in Jersey.
1: Like North Jersey. Also, it's just like very. Uh, I'm from a town called Ridgewood, which okay. is like very wealthy, but we weren't wealthy. And I, I just, it's like wealthy in an uninteresting way. It's not like, uh, you know, there are some now cool towns in Northern New Jersey where like a lot of people in media and publishing are are living, sort of, you know, the Brooklyn annex and yeah. Ridgewood. Never has been and never will be. Like there's not, it's not even it's not even
0: interestingly like, it's not like wealthy interesting where there could be like corruption.
1: No, <laughs> or- no. Well, there is a little bit of that. Actually, that woman um, who was working for Chris Christie, you know, the one who in, in the okay. Bridget, or yeah. whatever her name was. I took one look at her and I said, I know she's from Ridgewood, and because she, she just she had like the the pink um, you know eyes shirt with the upturned collar okay. or something. I don't. I'm just in my in my mind. She she might as well have even if she wasn't actually wearing that, and the pearls. And I just thought, oh, she's got to be from Ridgewood. And um, she was. She had some kind of connection.
0: So like preppy conservative?
1: Yeah. And especially when I was growing up in the 80s, it was all preppy. I mean, the preppy handbook was taken seriously. It, it was not seen as a as a, as a humor book or, or, or ironic in any way. This was like a Bible for mm-hmm. junior high school girls.
0: And politically, though, like it is more conservative because like New York City is considered kind of like a really blue place.
1: Yeah, but it's, It's it's stockbrokers, the finance people. Ridgewood took a big hit on nine eleven. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's the that's the vibe. All
0: right. And so, but you grew up there in this wealthy enclave, and like you were, your family was not necessarily of the.
1: Oh no, we were my. Well, I moved to Ridgewood when I was nine, and um, we had moved from Austin, Texas. So that was, I mean, that that's like child abuse, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Take your cat out of Austin to, in so the seventies. You, you, you must
0: have such like fond, like idealized memories, right? Yeah,
1: but they're and they don't hold up at all. Then you know, then you go to Austin now, and it's like, yeah. you know, Brooklyn. Yeah, like Brooklyn is now, <laughs> right? Um, no. So my father uh, is a is a composer and an orchestrator and an arranger. Okay. So he and he was always freelance. So he came, we moved to New Jersey when my father was like 40. He had been, um, you know, teaching music unhappily at at the University of Texas. He, you know, was a professor there sort of, and then decided that he wanted to like make his way in New York. So basically the the thing that he should have done 20 years earlier, he did when he was 40 and had a family. And so we were kind of like the Beverly Hillbillies. We like arrived in this... Plymouth Horizon in Ridgewood (laughs) that we had driven from Austin, and my father did not have like a job. I mean, he was he was freelance. So so I definitely grew up um, becoming very accustomed to financial uncertainty and uh, not having a nine to five regular sort of job, that sort of thing. So, So,
0: but what did it do psychologically? Because uh, and this is of interest to me as a parent living in Los Angeles, Mm. where there's like all this absurd. I mean, there's. It, there's a lot. It runs the gamut, but I mean, there's a lot of absurdly wealthy people that you come in contact to, you know, in contact with through schools and stuff like that. Right? What's it like to grow up among those people but to not be like that? Did that uh, affect you in a, in a really negative way? Well,
1: or? I, I mean, let's be clear. Ridgewood is an affluent suburb, but it's not like Greenwich. Beverly Hills or yeah. Greenwich or even some other places in New Jersey. I, I wasn't really aware. I mean, you know, this was a time, and it's interesting. I wonder if it's still like this. It wasn't um cool to say you were rich like you know there was a kind of waspy um although it was actually very catholic it, there there was just this kind of feeling that um you, you didn't you know you weren't going to talk about that and it wasn't i mean it's it's not like it, it wasn't like everybody was was wealthy it's just that we were not um we, we were not part of the community for a lot of reasons. Like my, my parents just sort of hated everybody and felt really <laughs> out of place. And the, the money issue was only a, a fraction of our, of our isolation. Let's put it that way.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's it. You know, I can I kind of get it. Cause you're living in this town full of bankers and your, your dad's an artist.
1: Yeah. And he was a jingle writer. So this was in the eighties. And so there was still such a thing as commercial jingles. So he would, um, write and do arrangements for, like, you know, commercials. And then my younger brother actually got into the... Um, was, like, this prodigal singer. So he started singing commercial jingles when he was, like, five.
0: Wow, that's and, good work, though. Get, like, writing jingles oh, yeah. back in the day. Like, that was... Yes. That was, big, that was good yes. stuff. Yes. 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 But, but, like, not, like, necessarily from an artistic perspective, <laughs> like, soul-fulfilling work. Right? No.
1: I I think... I, I don't know what he... It's kind of unclear what what he sort of what he aspired to do I mean I could tell you what my mother my mother wanted my father to like you know
0: like be like Leonard Bernstein or something or
1: yeah or or you know do conduct a pit orchestra in a Broadway musical or or something like that
0: right
1: um, and uh, not, that never really happened
0: did he but he didn't express that he wanted to do that
1: my father is um, he's incredibly talented he's he, I I feel very close to him in a lot of ways, um, but his ambition manifests in a sort of interesting way. It doesn't. He really um, does not have a sellout bone in his body, and it's admirable yet also exasperating. He he had he was supposed to be writing all the music for Ren and Stimpy, because he started getting into animation. He, he would do a lot of music for animated stuff, and um, I think the thing was still. You know, it wasn't on the air yet, or it was like a pilot or something, and he thought it was tasteless, so he walked off the project. Oh, God.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's like the best.
1: Yeah, it was like, you know, right when they needed to be paying for my brother's college and stuff like that.
0: Did yeah, you? Were so. you aware that he was up for it when it was when he was up for it? No, or?
1: I didn't. I, I, can't, I don't remember. Where, I think I might have been out of the house by then. I was, was going to say,
0: I feel like if you could have consulted, this would have been a I,
1: I would, But it wasn't on the air. Oh, right. No, we so didn't, didn't know. know. Yeah. We, we didn't know. Yeah.
0: Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> and then uh what, what did your mother do
1: she well, she kind of did a lot of things for a long time and then um when she was about fifty, she sort of remade herself into this um like dramatic person, so she became um, a theater uh like a high school theater director, so she was the drama teacher, and she would put on the the shows. Um, in my high school, and she eventually r- rose up through the ranks and became like coordinator of performing arts for the
0: school oh, okay. district. So you've got, I mean, you've got art in your blood.
1: Yes. But none of them, I'm, I'm a total black sheep. They're all musicians. I mean, uh, growing up, it was all about music and there was really nothing else. I mean, they did not encourage sports or anything like that. So, um, yeah, we had to do music and, and, um, you know, my mother played the piano and, and my brother sang and he played the piano. Um, and I quit the piano, but I was only allowed to quit if I took up an instrument. Um, and the instrument that they suggested was the oboe. So I was actually a very serious oboist really? all the way through college. Can you yes. still play? I can, but the thing with the oboe is it's like you can't a, just pick it up because you have a reed and it's really temperamental and, yeah. and you can't. It's um, like a
0: cousin of the clarinet. No,
1: it's a cousin of the bassoon, bassoon. and a lot of people think it's the bassoon because it has like a weird sort of the the word oboe is weird and the way the word bassoon is weird, and but the bassoon is like the really long thing that looks like a bong. That's the bassoon. (laughs) The oboe is much smaller. Yeah, right. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I I I wish that I had. Excuse me. I wish that I had played the violin or something like that because I think I would probably still be playing. But the oboe is not something you can play casually.
0: Well and I you know, I, I, I wrestle with this because I'm not a musical person, or at least I don't know that I am. I was never really exposed to it aside from like a brief like snare drum experiment when I was like in elementary school.
1: Only the snare drum, not any other drums.
0: No, it was like I was the snare drummer in my little like band in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the instrument that I picked just cause I mean, little boys want to just like bang on a drum, yes. you know, but I didn't take it any further than that. We didn't have, mu- you know, musical instruments in our house. And then as you get older, you-, you know, you're like, Oh God, what I wouldn't give to be able to like shred on the guitar or something yeah, or play the piano or just anything. And yeah. so there's a part of me as a parent now that I'm like, well, we should make sure, there's, like, two things that I want to do. I want my daughter to speak multiple languages, and I want her to be able to play an instrument, both of which ambitions are ambitions of mine. That
1: you cannot do. So yeah. you're just projecting your, exactly. your exactly. insecurities onto her. But that's what parenting is, I guess.
0: I guess. I mean, I'm just trying to, like, make you know, it's like you try to, make, you know, make it maybe a little bit better than it was or, like, correct, you know, you know what I'm saying. But
1: you're probably going to want her to play, like, certain classic rock music on the guitar because that's what you would have played maybe. so you're just going to be or just psyched.
0: to just to have like a, a competence on an instrument yes. and to have and to be at least bilingual um, as a matter of just like basic education but the problem is and this is what I wonder about and maybe you can speak to this is that you know if, especially when it comes to an instrument if a kid doesn't have a natural inclination for it you can't shoehorn that can you I mean to, no. which, I guess to a point I maybe, mean- but at some point they're going to say fuck this <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, people have been known to do it. Yeah, Uh, I think it. For me, I feel like if I hadn't been pushed so hard into playing just classical music, and if I had felt, um, if I had felt that I had permission to pursue, like other, if I could have played the guitar and been a singer songwriter, I would be so happy. I, I there is really not a day that goes by of my life where I don't just feel sad, not just like, you know, mm, wistful, sad that I am not like a chick with a guitar. It's really tragic. It is like the central tragedy of my life. And I, and I made, I shouldn't say I made no effort. I mean, you know, when I was like 25, I decided I would try to, you know, and I took lessons from this guy and, and, and I bought a guitar and, and, and and I'm so, um, you know, the problem is that I, I don't play music anymore, but I grew up in this really musically sophisticated family. So I have a really good ear and I don't have any tolerance for just sort of like boring, you know, two chord songs or anything like that. Like I immediately wanted to do alternate tunings and play all these really complicated chords. And I, and that's (laughs) like that you don't start with that. Right. And I just, I had no patience.
0: And and 25, I mean, I guess some people can pick it up at 25, but it's the kind of thing you got to pick it up like no later than what, like 18 years old no, I mean, people
1: a, do. I mean, you know, they, but I
0: mean, to play professionally to, be oh, a, professionally, to be in a band and to do. Well, that yeah, because
1: thing. you need to you don't want to be really old and, and starting out.
0: Yeah, you got to be yeah, you got to be young. you, you got to be like in the band when you're like 20. Yeah. And then yeah. like ascending. I mean, I know like people can hit in their 30s, but they've been on the road at that point for like 10 years. Right. So. Yeah. Um, OK, so you're growing up. You're the writer in the family. Yes. Like and this was being demonstrated at a young age.
1: Yes. Um yeah, even before I could write, I would draw pictures obsessively. Like to the point where one my mother always told the story, one weekend like we literally ran out of paper. Like I had these sort of reams of of paper and I would draw pictures that were stories on them. And I just like obsessively did it, and I and they ran out. So so I would do that, and then I would often make books and have my mother. I would tell my mother the words to write under the pictures. So I would you know because I couldn't write yet. It was like so. Better three like, you're something.
0: like outsourcing it. You're like you had stories to tell, <laughs> right. but you couldn't even. If there
1: had been voice recognition back <laughs> right, then, right? Done and done. I I would yeah. I would be publishing. Uh, most of them were based on Little House in the Prairie, so they were kind of they were a little derivative. Um, so yeah, I, I really, I always was a writer and I, I guess, you know, there were, I never really thought that I would, it's the kind of thing that came so easily to me that I almost didn't even imagine doing it. Like, I guess I thought that I would be an actor or something, you know, cause I did a lot of acting and theater and stuff. And I, I liked, I liked that idea. Can you sing? Uh, No, I used to be able to, I never got, I was okay as a kid singer. And then I like, didn't get any better. You know, like (laughs) I just stayed the same.
0: There are people like that. Like they, they pick up the guitar and like within like two weeks, they're playing like a Led Zeppelin song. That's the peak right there. It's like done. Right. Yeah. I think that does happen. Yeah.
1: No, my brother is a great singer. And, and for years, um, sang in a Steely Dan cover band.
0: I love Steely Dan. Well, you should Well, We live in Los Angeles. I always, I always argue this whenever Steely Dan comes up, I'm like. Steely Dan, whenever I listen to it, evokes a time in Los Angeles that I did not experience. Right. But that I completely romanticize. Like, uh, what was I joking about? What did I say? I think I tweeted something where it was like, whenever I hear the song, My Old School, I imagine like Jack Nicholson snorting cocaine off of a diving board. or like, Even
1: though it's about <laughs> Bard College.
0: I, exactly. But it was just the whole scene. I've Because imma- like yes. the 70s in Los Angeles seemed like kind of a glory day. It,
1: it, well, Steely Dan, Joan Didion, it's these sort of iconic, aesthetic uh, presentations that I, yes, I think
0: and Los good, Angeles- was a good period in American cinema history. Yes,
1: absolutely. But, and, and Los Angeles kind of had its its moment. I mean, I don't know how old you are. We're probably around the same age. And, you know, so when you're growing up and you're imagining this sort of adult experience that yes. you're not yet able to have-
0: The Manson family. You can, right. So- <laughs> I mean, Like all the darkness, all the light, it just seemed it and, and like, uh, like the Sunset Strip was actually cool- yeah, that stuff was happening, and
1: Laura uh, Yeah, and and Hollywood Hills were kind of bohemian. Yes, and, yeah. It doesn't yeah. seem
0: like seems like a lot of that magic has been, uh, you know, removed. But I guess there's new magic elsewhere. I mean, you've been here now for how many years? Um, twelve years. So you've, com- yeah, I'm, I'm about the same. You've completed the migration all the way across the country, and now
1: I'm tired of it. Are you Are you ready to leave?
0: No, I mean, I like <laughs> it. I like it, but. Um, it's just the question of uh, cost of living. Yeah. Can we, can we raise a family here and do it like considering what I do and what, you know, it's like, how do you make it all work? It's a very expensive place to live. So, you know, it would be, it's like New York. If you have a ton of money, it's a great place to live. If you yeah. don't, it's a struggle. Where did day. you grow up? In the Midwest. Oh, where? I like Milwaukee and then Indianapolis. Oh. So just like heartland.
1: So you couldn't, uh, you wouldn't live in the Midwest again?
0: I, you know, I don't think so. I like the sun. I'm a, I'm a total baby about the weather. I really am. I really like having no seasons. Really? I li- yes. Yeah. I like it all. I did all that. I you know. And so there's like a part of, me, and I really like L.A. Like I like
1: it. Yeah, I do too. I think it's a great city. I think it's a great city to live in. It's hard to visit. It's yes. a pl- It's hard to get a grasp on. It's you know how you can't. It's hard to photograph. Disney Hall, you know, it's because it's such a weird. It's it's so big, and you can't kind of back away from it to get a good picture. I, I feel like that's just a metaphor for L. A. It's really hard to get a grip on because it's like a place that should be seen from an aerial view, yeah, kind of thing. From so, the
0: smog, <laughs> yeah, and it just
1: you you're kind of looking down on it, yeah. which is again a great metaphor because <laughs> there's a lot of people here that one should look down on. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I think that it's. It's a sort of place of hidden spaces and and surprises, um, and I also what I love about L.A. is that it kind of knows the ways in which it sucks. It's it's not like San Francisco that's so self congratulatory and
0: San Francisco and lo- I mean, there's a big rivalry, and San Francisco like loves to bet. There should on be LA.
1: no rivalry. There's no contest. I mean, it's it's apples and oranges.
0: Yeah, and like, San Francisco is wonderful, but like, I, I don't hear a lot of people in L.A. being like, "Fuck San Francisco." But like when you're in San Francisco, <laughs> right. like you hear a lot of people being like, "Fuck Los Angeles." But it's such
1: it's such an obvious position to take. Like, right. yes, you know, it's the entertainment industry. It's there's all it's all sorts of garbage that's being generated here. Okay, we get it, we get it. Yeah. But you know, m- move on. I mean, there's there's a, a lot simplistic. going on. There's such yeah. a simplistic yeah. Like, yeah.
0: assessment. You know. Yeah. You yeah. have the weapons industry too.
1: <laughs> There's so much. I, yeah, I think people should have sort of amazed that there are people here who are not in the industry. But that's actually like most people. You know, ninety yeah. percent of people have just normal jobs. And
0: so, where would you go if you left? You said you're getting kind of tired of it.
1: Oh, I don't know. I'm so I, I have wanderlust all the time. I love yeah. to move. I, lo- I wrote I a whole book about right. about how I love to move. Um, I don't know. Portland. No, God, no, no. No, That's like San Francisco. That's like worse than San Francisco. I guess it's cheaper. So
0: Chicago's good, but it's cold.
1: Yeah, I don't know. New
0: Orleans has soul. No, No. I. You lived in Nebraska. I did. Okay, I moved
1: to Nebraska from New York City. Yes, when I was almost thirty, for no reason at
0: all, just to get the fuck out of like Manhattan and that whole thing. Yeah.
1: Well, I was really in debt. I was about eighty thousand dollars in debt from student loans. And just from living in New York, like, slightly above my means. You know, it was like I, I got an, apart- an apartment. I mean, this was the 90s. Even to recall, like, the rents that I was complaining about at the time is like a Sounds joke silly. now. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I lived with roommates for many, many years. And then I got my own apartment and it was rent controlled or something. But it was still, like, a little bit more than I actually had. And so I was kind of just going more into debt all the time and I didn't have health insurance and I had some dental stuff I had to do. So it's just that kind of cumulative train wreck that happens. And I was, a, I was a freelance magazine writer and I was actually doing pretty well, but I didn't have benefits. I, I was just, you know, right. you know how it is. Sure. Um, so I decided when I was 29 that I was going to move to Lincoln, Nebraska. Why Lincoln? I had been there doing a magazine story. Uh, and I loved it. I always had this prairie fetish. I, you know, I loved The Little House on the Prairie when I was little, and I loved flat. I love. You are you
0: are officially the first person who has explicitly stated a prairie fetish. Prairie fetish. fetish.
1: Yes. Yeah, I know. It should it should be like a doll, like a sex doll or something.
0: <laughs> I kind of get it though. Like I like when I watched like um, movies, like period piece movies that are set back when like America still had a frontier. Whenever they get out to the frontier and, like, the string music is playing, like, I get, like...
1: Well, Days of Heaven. I mean, yes. I know that's Texas, no, but it's... like,
0: golden it, yes. fields of oh, wheat, like, wide love, open. Yeah.
1: Love. I, yeah. And I, my favorite landscape in the world is just the flat, the no trees, the big sky on the flat land. I yeah. just love that. So, yeah, so I had, I had gone to Lincoln on a reporting trip, and I loved the landscape, and I noticed that it was really cheap, And I kind of just had this moment after I got back to New York, where I just said, I can't continue living like this. I mean, I was just in a panic all of the time about money. And yet, you know, it's kind of like, you're, it's like having an addiction. It's like I'm in a panic all the time about money, yet I'm still going out to, for drinks with my friends at this expensive place. And why am I doing this? It's like and, a drug
0: addiction. Yeah. Kind of, yeah, And you
1: and but it's like, what are you supposed to do? I'm not going to just sit in my apartment. Like, what's the, what's the point of living here if I'm not going to do these things? Right. But I can't afford these things.
0: And also, like, it's not even that. It, it, or it, it is that. But then it's also. Uh, how do you become the person who doesn't do anything? You can have friends, people, you know, yeah, it's impossible to be completely antisocial in this, in the service of, um, you know, fixing your debt situation. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? You can't become a complete monk shut in and it just doesn't work, but you could, but it's really impractical.
1: There's just no, I, yeah, there's no point. So, so there was a financial aspect, but there was also this kind of deeper, feeling I had, which is that I was becoming very provincial in a way that New Yorkers are provincial. And I just, my concerns were very much kind of hemmed in by magazine trend pieces that I was writing and just sort of.
0: You were becoming that person. I
1: was becoming that person. And I really just, I felt like if I stayed, I I knew what was going to happen. Like I was just going to continue to be that person. And I, there, I just felt that there were, I was only using like 15% 15% of my personality. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I just decided to do this crazy thing and I didn't know anybody and I got on a plane and I moved there.
0: <laughs> and you rented a place and I just, rented a like, little house. A pra- on, on the prairie? Well,
1: not initially. I rented a house in town and um, then I, and of course, like this, as soon as I did this, every magazine editor in New York wanted me to write. About it. So I never had more work in my
0: life. So, but you have, I mean, you had built up um, a reputation and a stable yes. of contacts. Yes. Of you, and so you could get work as a freelancer. Yeah, it
1: didn't matter. I mean, yeah. the internet was, you know, happening, happening, not the way it was later, but there was email. And um, yeah, no, I had a pretty decent, um, you know, Professional you, you uh, see, reputation. You didn't
0: have to show up in Nebraska and start working for the insurance, you know, companies or whatever. No, yeah,
1: no. Um, but you know, it was strange too because I had published this piece in the New Yorker um, shortly before I moved to Nebraska, and it, it ended up being the title piece of my my essay book, My Misspent Youth. So this piece was basically about going into debt in New York and the mythology of the city and, you know, the, this sort of, you know, the fantasy of having th- this bohemian existence in in a version of New York that doesn't exist anymore. Kind of the New York analog to the Steely Dan 70s era right, L.A. that right. we were talking about. Yeah. Um, and I, I talked about... It, it was, you know, it's so funny because it was considered very revealing because I listed my debt... And I said how much I spent on everything, and to me it just didn't feel like it was, it's it's literally only money. Like I was so detached from the experience of spending money that I didn't even care if I was revealing it in the New Yorker. Um, and then at the end of the piece, I say I've decided to move to Lincoln, Nebraska. So they, this piece comes out, and it, it, after I had been in you know Nebraska, oh I guess it did. It came out right after I moved. So so I moved to Lincoln. This piece in the New Yorker comes out you know, this young girl talking about her, not young, I was 29 t- you know, talking about her dad and saying, she's going to move. And so it was like everyone in Lincoln who s- subscribed to the New Yorker, <laughs> which is like a very, you know, <laughs> self happy yeah. bunch, right. Uh, you know, called me up and invited me over to dinner. So I had, I had this very strange.
0: You were like a celebrity there.
1: I was a celebrity, but also a freak. Like what? Like it, they were a little bit frightened. Like I, I might've been a little mentally ill or something <laughs> also like, I, so it was like, a, they were, they were cautious. Yeah as they should have been. Um, so yeah. But then I ended up meeting a guy who was, you know, really kind of eccentric, um, mess and, uh, didn't, didn't really have a job, of course, and all this, a bunch of kids. Uh, and, um, (laughs) yeah, we moved to a little farmhouse. Then I got to have my, my little house on the prairie.
0: You got your your prairie moment. Yes. Wow. Okay. So did you, I mean, how long were you there for?
1: Um, almost four years.
0: Was it, I mean, at what point were you like, I'm ready to get out? What, what, at the what, end. At the end,
1: <laughs> when I it? left.
0: Was it the, Would you break up with this guy or was it just like, okay, I'm done um, with the prairie,
1: I, I actually, well, then I ended up writing a novel. You know, I was there for like the first two years and I was freelancing, and what was happening was that all these editors were like, Talk, talk about how you've simplified your life and you've cleansed uh-huh. your soul. Yeah. And I, you know, I went on Oprah. Like I actually, <laughs> and it was, it was so devastating because I didn't have a book. I didn't have anything to sell. And and yet like Oprah invites me on the show. You, know? you went it, on Oprah? I, I was, but I was in, I wasn't on the stage. I was one of those front row okay. people. yeah. Yeah, but it was all about what how- What was it like
0: to be in her, in her immediate shadow, like presence? Like, was it powerful? Because um, I see, this is the thing. I mean, I had this conversation with my wife just the other day about Oprah and- you know, I got nothing against Oprah. I mean, like, what has she done? She she seems like a nice enough person, I guess. I don't, you know, I don't know her. But what bothers me is like the craze in that crowd. Yeah, that's what disturbs me. It's like the, the shrieking and the tears, and it's like, what is going on there? And like, how is it ca- caused by her? I'm I'm imagining that you were not shrieking and, and you know cheering or whatever. But do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's I I find that there's like this cult of personality, a particular sorts of women. Glom on to particular sorts of high-profile women. women, and it is yeah. this sort of like self-help, um, soul journey kind of <laughs> um, conversation <laughs> around it. What I did find, I mean, I can't, you know, it was so long ago. I think I met Oprah backstage for a second, and then, and then we did the show. She didn't know what it was like. She was reading the teleprompter because it came my time to tell my story about because the, the theme of the show was change your life or something like people who had radically changed their lives. So there was like, um, a woman who had been an actress who, uh, decided to become a news anchor. So that was one person. There was a woman who was a lawyer who became a race car driver. There was someone who lost 300 pounds because you're going to get a shoehorn that into anything. (laughs) And then there was me. Yeah. And I started telling my story about how I moved from New York to Nebraska. And she was like, Wait, Nebraska? What? You know, she clearly didn't even know it was. This was complete, you know, news to her. Right. Um. So we did the show, but then I, you know, afterward she does this thing, or she would do this thing where she would talk to the audience extemporaneously, and they would t- and take questions. And this it, it later became that thing, Oprah after the show. But at that time, it was not recorded or anything and there she just absolutely came alive i mean that was where you saw her yes it was like oh i get it like this is she's really engaged and she really does sort of have a a charisma and this notion that she wants people to think about their lives which i actually think is great yeah i actually you know
0: like look with that platform she could have done a lot worse you know what i'm saying i mean like she or anybody else like she you know i think it's easy she can be an easy target. Um, for a variety of reasons, one of which being the thing that I just talked about, but you got to yeah. give her credit too, and she's she's not she's a very generous person, you know.
1: Yeah, and and I I mean I think from what I understand when she first kind of stopped doing the celebrity interviews and in the kind of Phil Donahue style show and and turned it more towards this idea of thinking about your life and your choices and all that she her ratings really went down i mean that there was that time sort of between the phil donahue style and the dr oz stuff that came after that um where you know it was a lot sort of you know she, but once she, people she made got a, on board that yeah then it board. just <laughs> then it was dr oz all uh, the way yeah, and yeah, dr yeah. phil all the way um
0: so you did that you're in nebraska yeah. And then, like, what precipitated the move from Nebraska to, to Los oh, Angeles? okay. It?
1: Well, I had re- – so, yeah. So I ended up writing this novel called The Quality of Life Report, and that was inspired by the way all these editors and Oprah, for instance, um, were were kind of imposing this narrative on my experience. Like, oh, you must be such a much better person now that you don't live in New right. York and you live in Nebraska and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And your life must be so much simpler. And, in fact, it, it wasn't. It was like I never knew such, like, screwed up people – in ever like i i it was being in this small city i the people were just a mess and and really colorful and eccentric but also like made really bad choices in a way that you don't see when you're like you know in a certain running around in certain circles in major cities because there isn't the margin of error. Like the, the metaphor I always came up with, it's like, you know, how when you're landing a, a plane in at LaGuardia or something, it, there's no room for error. Like you have to hit the runway. You can't go this way or that way. And in Nebraska, when you land, <laughs> there's like you could go anywhere. There's a cornfield over here, there's it you know There's a four, and, there's
0: like a three hundred dollar a month house waiting for you.
1: you right, know? but it's like you can you could skid all over when the plane could land wherever and it's still going to be okay. And, yeah. and I really felt that the same thing applied on the ground. It was like people would have children really young and not marry the person, but then it would, wouldn't really matter because their house barely cost anything and, and they've lived really well yeah. Um, doing things that I couldn't have dreamed of, like yeah. from, from where I came from, well, which sure. was just being on a really short leash and, and not having this margin of error. So, that sort of like that that paradox inspired me to write this novel called The Quality of Life Report which was about a television reporter which I never have been um who moves to this place called Prairie City or PC for short <laughs> that's the other thing about uh academic towns in the midwest so politically correct oh, oh my gosh yeah yeah like my Angelou came to lincoln to speak once and you would i'm surprised they didn't like shut the schools down you know it should have been a holiday it was crazy yeah okay um uh so yeah so i ended up writing this novel and uh and then i sold it and then you know i i knew that i i really loved living on this little farm um but there was a lot of dysfunction in a lot of different ways and I, i knew that if i moving to Nebraska had been the best thing I ever did, but if I stayed, it was gonna turn into the worst thing I ever did. So. <laughs> you got out. <laughs> so I took my dog and I came to LA and I didn't want to I, I didn't I had this big dog so I didn't want to go back to New York. So I kinda moved to LA for
0: the dog. For the dog, yeah, that's that's what I said. The weather and yeah, and I had
1: you know, but and and I had a a screen, you know, the 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 novel had been optioned for a film, so I had, but you know, that's was the kind of excuse that I made, like, well, I have to move, I have to move to Hollywood, (laughs) Um, but obviously, it didn't matter where I lived. I'm sure I would have been a much hotter commodity as a screenwriter if I remained living in Nebraska, right? Yeah,
0: then you got that whole like authenticity thing going.
1: Yes, the whole authenticity thing going.
0: Yeah, yeah, but it's like, but it's a, but it's a, but what you what you found is that it's an illusion. People are screwed up more or less everywhere. It's just in like different ways and in different places. I mean, yeah. What's the lesson?
1: Well, the lesson for me about this, the way of being screwed up in Nebraska was that they actually were living their lives in i in an authentic way. I think actually, like, like they were actually taking risks and they would make mistakes, but they weren't kind of waiting for the right moment. Like, you know how this? I I feel like. You know, if you grow up in a, in a certain way, you, there's always this sense, well, it's not the right time to do this. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm, I can't get married until I'm, you know, 30, whatever. And yeah. I can't have a child until it's almost too late. Like, right. you know, and so th- when you take that away, people just do their lives and they actually get to have bigger lives than some people like us do because they just keep doing stuff.
0: Yeah. They're just like, fuck it. Yeah. There's not all these rules.
1: Right. And they're not as, it's not as disastrous if, if things go go, go wrong. South. Yeah. Yeah. So that so, was but, the lesson.
0: Okay. Cause yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we share a similar fixation. I think a lot of people think about place, like where to live, not mm-hmm. only in terms of geography, but also like the actual living space, which I yes. know you've, you know, you've written about. But, yes. Um, when it comes to your writing career, you know, I think people listening would probably be interested. Like how, how did she do all of this freelance magazine writing so successfully? How did you build that? Reputation and get that kind of network of contacts? How do you get yourself into the New Yorker? And then I think the the second part of it would be, you know, I think uh, you're known as um, a, a personal writer. Fair assessment? Yes. Somebody who minds her own life, who's, who's very good at the personal essay, who's able to take the stuff of her life and then put it on the page. Um, is that what you set out to do when you were starting out trying to get freelance work at magazines? Was that like the idea? Oh,
1: when I started out getting freelance work at magazines, I was writing like quizzes. You
0: know, I know, but 12, I mean,
1: twelve ways to know if if he's going to break up with you or something like that.
0: Right, but in the back of your mind, were you thinking one day I'm going to be writing like Joan Didion essays, or you know what I'm saying? Was yeah, that, you I. Have a goal?
1: I mean, you know, it's funny because I am associated with the personal essay, and and I, I often get kind of tarred as a confessionalist or someone who only writes about herself. I actually write a lot of stuff. It just nobody talks about the other stuff. The the, the stuff that gets discussed is the stuff that's really personal. I, I've done a lot of reporting. I write profiles. I'm a, I'm a columnist. You just
0: uh, profiled Lena Tone. Yeah, been, and
1: you know, I, I was not in that piece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. I. You know. I've been a columnist at the L. A. Times for nine years, and they're not. You know. I I do use the I a lot, but they're. It's it's actually rarely about me, but I know it seems seems like it's all very personal. But I think it's just more that the stuff that people attach themselves to and want to talk about and the stuff that gets the most attention is the stuff that is personal. It's
0: the easiest way, especially in an interview, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess I wanted... I I wanted to be a fiction writer. I mean, I I got out of college and I got a job at um at a magazine like at Condé Nast. I got a job at Allure magazine, okay? okay. And so it was very much like devil wears Prada kind of world. I just got coffee. You know, I was abused and I got coffee and I was crying all the time. You know, it was just terrible. (laughs) Uh, And I was so under, I mean, I was like such a little ragamuffin. I mean, all this, you know, the assistants, you got paid $18,000 a year, but they all still managed to have timeshares in the Hamptons and, you know, Uh they have these apartments that their parents had paid for or something. And I was like living up near Columbia, which at that time was, you know, you needed a visa to get up there or something. (laughs) And, uh, Oh my gosh! I just like was the most horribly dressed person in the in Conde Nest, like into the elevator. I mean, I you know it's put me in the freight elevator or something. <laughs> but um, I did that for for a year, and I really like. I I had an insane boss, but one of the great things about her was that she she actually really did let me do her job, and so I work I worked with a lot of writers, and we had really great. We had like Mary Gateskill and David Mamet and Francine Prose and people like that writing you know articles for our magazine cuz they would do you know a personal essay kind of thing sure um and at that time the creative nonfiction as a genre was not really a big thing so i just assumed i was going to be a fiction writer so i went to columbia to the mfa program for fiction and i i was not i, I was not that great i mean i was writing kind of laurie moore knockoff
0: short stories and that kind of thing
1: and then i took a nonfiction workshop and it's like everything clicked it's like oh this just i mean because you know because i i was also interested in being a journalist i you know it wouldn't have been enough for me to be a, a fiction writer for me anyway like i really like other people i mean i think finally somebody said to me like well what do you like better feature films or documentaries and i was like documentaries me too and, and and it's like, and they said, "Well, then why don't you be a nonfiction writer?" And that was it. Like, oh, you're right.
0: But I've, see, I see. I kind of agree in a way. But I've also heard it flip, where like people who write feature films sometimes will watch. You know, like people who write fiction will sometimes like primarily read non. Mm. They'll have these weird habits that hmm. feed. You know, and I don't you know. Maybe that's an anomaly, but no, I think it I, can work anyway.
1: Yeah. I I mean, for me, I I loved the idea of writing about. Stuff that was happening in the world and using myself and my experience as a lens, like i the one thing i I never wanted to do was just write about myself, like I was not interested in like handing in diary entries or, or anything like that so so it was really important to me that that it transcended the personal and, and talked about things in the world that that affected a lot of people
0: well and it 's like okay, and so like experiential. Uh, writing where you're out in the field doing stuff like journal journalistic yeah. stuff like that's part of the equation for you because yeah, a, a, lot I've of done writers, a lot of writers mean, a lot of writers sit at home you know like they don't really get they don't really get out much but you
1: run out of stuff you know
0: well, i was going to ask you, like when it comes to <laughs> currently
1: wanting, i'm totally out I i'm was completely say. <laughs> up-date at this moment
0: so yeah. i mean do you ever do you feel like when you moved to Lincoln, i know you were in debt I, when you moved to los angeles i know you feared that you were at like some sort of tipping point where things were going to get dark after they had been good.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Um, but also part of the equation must be like, I need material.
1: Um,
0: like even I, if it's, a, yeah. even if it's not primary, is it? Of secondary? Well, yeah,
1: I mean, everything is, uh, yeah, I mean, I get, it would be disingenuous to say that I don't, see my life and experiences as potential material. I actually I I honestly did not move to Nebraska in, in order to write about it. I I mean it didn't surprise me that I ended up writing about it, but it's not like I thought, oh, this would be a great place to write a novel about moving to. <laughs> Um,
0: you're like, really, I'm $80,000 in debt. Yeah. And,
1: and even, I mean, in Los Angeles, I don't, I certainly didn't move to Los Angeles to write about Los Angeles. I haven't, there's an essay in the book that is specifically about LA, but it's not something that I have sort of taken on as a, as a subject, uh, all that often. So, so we are talking about, about just minding our own experiences. For yeah, material. yeah, yeah, and
0: just like you know, the moving and and what like you know how how you go about like calculating life decisions based on your creative work because like you said, like we we've been talking about. I mean, you do journalism uh, or journalistic work that is uh, you know doesn't get the attention that maybe your more personal stuff does. Right, um, but you know, I guess is it fair to say your bread and butter is personal? writing and if, if well if so, my bread
1: and butter is the newspaper column so yeah. my bread and butter is actually writing this column every week and going off the news and trying to think of something original to say when there are 100 million people writing opinion pieces yes <laughs> every hour yes um
0: we live in the age of like published opinion it's pieces. all
1: opinion yeah and it's just like oh i wrote this and look it's on the huffington post 10 minutes later <laughs> it's it's i i'm so grateful to have an editor still and have a gig that there is like, especially, especially
0: when you're working that and that quick a turnaround. I mean, yeah. you know, that's when you really, you don't have time to sit there and really let, let the thing sit and right. go over. You need somebody there to, to be like a firewall. So yeah. So and it's, it's, it's
1: actually the column is it's just, there's, it's a real sweet spot because I don't have time to be precious about it. One it's one great liberating thing that's come out of it is that I'm not as, I, I, it has freed me from overthinking my work. Like, I, you know, obviously, like if it's a longer piece or the book or something, you're gonna take a, a lot more time. But, but with the column, no, you're not gonna hit it out of the park every week, and you just accept that. Yeah. Um. And there's always another chance, which is great. So, so there's that aspect. But then there's also I'm not writing. Or the Daily Beast. I'm not writing for something that is going to get slapped up on the web five minutes after I file it. Right. That I have an editor. I have, you know, we work really fast, but at the end of the day, it's going to go up the next day. You yeah. know, and um, I'm I'm really grateful for that. And
0: is it syndicated? Is uh, it sometimes? appears
1: in um, in a couple different papers. It's not. I'm not. You know, it's funny. I've never been able to. I, I tried to be syndicated a few times. and like nobody ever. <laughs> It was. I just think I'm like neither fish nor fowl. I, I think people have a hard time uh, figuring out what it is because I'm not, you know, like I, I'm. I'm certainly like progressive in my politics, but I am not a predictable lefty. I try really hard to kind of stay away from that sort of stuff and and look at other look at other sides and and I'm not I'm not wonky. I mean, my goal with the column and actually with all the essays is is, is just just invite the reader to think alongside me. Right. That's what I want, and right. and I think that that in a column and, and an essay particularly, it's it's a suggestion. I'm not saying hey, agree with me. Hey, this is the way it is. I'm just saying, what if it was this way? What if we looked at it this way? And I think that's a hard thing to grasp if you are like a, somebody trying to sell, you know, news, sy- newspaper syndicate. Yeah, you know, if you're trying to get the the you know Council Bluffs newspaper to. Pick up a column. I think it's a kind of a hard thing to articulate. It's
0: like though. yeah, they don't want nuance. They kind of want like a hard opinion, one way or the other. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's kind of the same reason I don't go on on TV very often and talk about what I've written, just because. I mean, <laughs> I went on Bill O'Reilly once, and I was just like, <laughs> that was
0: wow. <laughs> TV. I feel. I honestly feel bad for writers who get it, like into the pundit, you know, the pundit chair or whatever, because. Talk about a compressed environment. You've got to. You never. No one can ever get their point across. People are talking over you. Yeah. It, it just seems like a really miserable place for somebody who's trying to actually make a point. Well,
1: it's funny because before we started, you said like, don't move around. You know, speak directly into the microphone. Like, don't shift your body around. And when I went on Bill O'Reilly, I was doing it from a studio here in L.A. So I went, and they, and I was just looking into a. A camera. There was no monitor. I couldn't see myself or anything. And I, when he was interviewing me, I didn't realize that I was on split screen. You know, so there was him and somebody else, and then me. And so when I wasn't speaking, I would kind of like, you know, move around and I would look up in the air and you know, as if I was on radio because I do radio interviews quite a bit. And in fact. I—that's what everyone was seeing. Like I, you know, the, the other two people were talking and looking straight forward, and I was like, and you know, rolling my eyes, and it was horrible. And I got so much shit for it. Like instantly, like a million, you know, Bill O'Reilly uh, uh, acolytes and endorsers right. were just all over me. Like you are a disgrace. You have no business being on TV. It's like actually, that, you are correct in that. In this case, yeah. you are correct. And I just. I had absolutely no idea that that that, that, I, that you can't just kind of a, look yeah. around. It's a, it's I, no, but nobody, nobody told me.
0: They I don't give know. You some, Yeah, You're <laughs> to just, you mean, like you have to like hold your gaze into that. Yeah, lens. no idea. All right. So wow. okay, so yeah. let's uh, let's talk about the new book. Uh, you know, you just published an excerpt in the New Yorker. Yeah, it's a good way to roll out a book of essays. Is to get the New Yorker to publish it. I
1: book. hope, but you know what? It's so funny because the New Yorker. You know, they re-edit it and and they re-fact. You know, they fact-check it. And it's like, wow, I I thought this was already edited and like
0: oh, no. it's back.
1: <laughs> so That'd it's be. like super edited. Yes. Yeah.
0: So, so. how do do you, so you have a good relationship with the New Yorker? Like you can publish stuff there sometimes
1: sometimes yeah. i mean it's well, not like do you, I- but do
0: you, i mean if once you've published there is it like is you still some you're not some to no. the slush pile you call someone up Oh
1: for- but i you know i have not written for the new yorker a lot i mean i had a two... when my 20s i had two big pieces including the my misspent youth piece and i have not i the new yorker is a is a magazine of, of reporting i mean it's it's hard to the kind of work that i do um i it would be hard to pitch that kind of thing and yeah. and i'm not somebody who's like a really serious, hardcore reporter. Um, And obviously, if you're a culture critic, those people are are staffed. It's not like you can say, hey, I want to review this TV show. Um, So no, I actually have not written a lot. I've written for the the website, and I've done that kind of stuff. Um, I'd like to do more for them. But no, in this case... um, my agent sold them the excerpt, and, and that's how that happened.
0: And the, and the excerpt is about your decision to not have children.
1: Well, the excerpt is a piece, it's from a piece called Difference Maker. And the essay, it's about, it's about a couple of different things. The, the framework of the piece has to do with my mentoring a couple of different kids, especially um, a kid who's in the foster care system and um i got involved working with him as a court advocate so um it's a volunteer position it's called court appointed special advocates and basically it's pretty intense as a volunteer job you 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 kind of keep track you are assigned to a case of a kid who's in the system and you keep track of all the different moving parts like you'll talk to, to you know foster parents or biological parents or therapists and lawyers and all this and then you go, you write a court report, and then you go to the judge at regular hearings, and you say, this is what's actually going on with this kid, because there's so many moving pieces, and nobody communicates with anybody. So, so the, the, you have these volunteers who are really like putting the information together. And that involves hanging out with the kid and being pretty in- involved in the nuts and bolts of <laughs> the just unbelievable bureaucracy of the system and the incredible tragedy that just goes on all the time. So the piece was about working with this kid and how my work with him coincided with this decision that I made with my husband a little bit, but mostly I made it um, not to have children. I I never really wanted children. It was not a priority. I got married when I was almost 40. Like, obviously it wasn't something (laughs) that was was guiding my decisions. Um, And, you know, it turned out that my husband wanted it a little more than I did. And there was a moment of waffling and I did get pregnant at one point and had a miscarriage. And then after that, I was like, no, like, this is not what I want. Um, And it was really, it was really difficult. So no. um, the pieces, it's a, it's a really sad piece and it's kind of an unresolved piece. Like a lot of the...
0: Like when I read it, I was expecting, I was like, okay, so she's going to adopt this kid. This, the foster kid. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying? I kept waiting for that payoff. <laughs> it didn't happen.
1: No, I yeah. did not adopt the kid. Although we did... You know, so I, I talk about this idea called the central sadness. It's it's this kind of this existential creep that that kind of invaded our marriage and, and we just kind of felt unfulfilled or unfinished in a kind of vague, floating way. Um, and we weren't sure if it had to do with not having a child. We weren't sure if it had to do with not being right for each other. Um, and so we kind of were like looking for various ways to, to get less sad. Um, and so at one point we did, and I write about this, we, we went to see, we went to a meeting of, of potential foster parents. Um, and I just totally freaked out and yeah. there was no way like that's just, it's not, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me that like people who don't really want kids would sort of make a compromise of adopting the most difficult kind of <laughs> child. It's saying. it's kind of like, I don't like animals at all, but I'm going to adopt this Pit fighting ball. dog. Yeah. Like it's just, it's the logic. It's great. But I, but I felt it's the, you get, there's a sort of romance to the rescue um, whether it's a child or, or whatever. And, and it's really um, it's, it's dangerous. You've, you've got to check yourself because it's destructive
0: to well, the child. And, and, you know, it's an interesting thing that you bring up because it. it I think that there are, are many people who feel this but don't necessarily have um, a way or the means to articulate it. But it's like the feeling of not wanting to have kids. And in our culture, you know, that's something that I think people don't believe. You know, I've, I, I have a friend who doesn't want to have kids and her mother's just like, freeze your eggs. You're going to have kids. You're going to change, You're going your, to mind. change your mind. You're going to change How your mind. How old is she? Uh, mid-30s. Uh, she so could still freeze her eggs. still a little If time. she can
1: afford it, I mean... Upper upper middle class people can freeze their eggs,
0: yeah, or <laughs> if you work for Facebook now you yes
1: you know? so so upper middle class people, yes yeah,
0: but you know it, it's complicated for me because I did want uh, a child, like always my whole life I yeah. felt like I was going to be a dad, and I think maybe always your life you never really felt like I'm going to be a mom Is right it, yeah, oh of-
1: no, I had had relationships break up over over this issue in my twenties, okay,, yeah. so
0: like, you knew. Yeah. And it's never really wavered. I mean, it's wavered a little bit.
1: Well, I mean, you know, I think that when you love someone, I mean, my pet theory on this is that you kind of can't help picturing what it would be like to have a child with them. I mean, there's just, and maybe this is just women do this, but it's like, I just think there's sort of a biological. Um, it's it's like a reaction, like so like, like oh I'm really into this person, like I love this person. What would that be like? Even if it's just like a, a fleeting thought. Right. So yeah, there was a moment where um, I I thought okay, I'm so ambivalent about this. You know, my husband, I love my husband, and and he's great, and he wants this, so I'm just gonna. I mean, to see what happens. Like, it's not like I want this, but I was like, I'm, I'm, the ambivalence is driving me so crazy. What's the just, ambivalence?
0: You know, what's, what's driving me ambivalence? Do you know
1: what was driving me sort of wanting it a little bit or well, no, just, not wanting it?
0: Just, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, or I guess like, yeah, why, why would you not want, do you know why you don't want to have kids or is it just like, yeah. A feeling? Oh
1: my gosh. Um, it's a feeling, but then it's also just, I don't. Um, it's not something I enjoy doing it's not it's not a good use of my time and I really I don't mean that in a flippant way I just feel like I have other things that I could do that will that are productive and that help this society and I, I really like volunteering I really like working with the, the foster care system it's fascinating to me and it's my skill set is useful in a lot of ways for that sort of work and I just don't
0: you don't I, wanna you don't wanna change diapers. You don't wanna
1: No, be- and I didn't like being a child at all. I didn't like children when I was one. <laughs> and so I I really don't I when I was a kid all I wanted to do was be an adult. I couldn't wait to grow up. And so I the idea and I know is obviously like you know, if you have children you still are a grown up and have a grown up life, but just the idea of having to kind of revisit all those things. Yeah. I I don't want to do. And yes, did I, you have a
0: difficult relationship with with your parents or family life? Yeah.
1: Oh, my my. I mean, my mother was a really complicated person. And Who you
0: write about in the book?
1: Yeah. I mean, I it was a really brutal essay. The first the first essay in the book is called Matricide, <laughs> and it's not about killing your mattress. <laughs> <laughs> but I I just. I don't um, I think it's a really hard job being a parent and it's a really important job and if you don't want to do it my god why would you do it
0: Yeah it just okay, that to so me let doesn't me, make let sense because like I I go through this in my head because I'm you know I'm thinking about it obviously from the position of being a parent and a happy parent um but I also have these big questions that gnaw at me every day about the state of the world and like what kind of world am I bringing my daughter right. into what kind of world would I be leaving her those things are matter to me and they seem hard, very difficult to resolve. But speaking for myself, I also know, and my wife and I have talked about this, like I love my wife. Um, she loves me, but we love our daughter. Right. Like I couldn't know what that feels like without her. Right. I would never know. I wouldn't have known. Like I, you know, and like we, you know, uh, there were, like pre-child, it's sort of like the joke. I mean, I think a lot of married couples who have kids go through this. But pre-child, it was like all Walter, my dog. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were—he we was like—we would come home early from like being out to like make sure he was okay, and then like you have a kid, and it's suddenly like you forget to feed the dog, and yeah. you know, things shift. But you know, that experience in life is like very rich, and so you know. But is that a selfish thing? I don't. You know, it's not a selfish thing. I think it's
1: a natural thing. It's yeah. biological. I will be the first to say there's a huge experience I am missing that I am not gonna get. The love that you describe, I'm not gonna have that. That's not gonna be something Yeah, I am okay with that because I have other things. Right. And and you know, one of the things that I really feel strongly about when talking about this stuff is that people who don't have people who don 't want kids need to just be able to say i just don 't want them right. and often it just turns into well the, it, i 'd rather have this porsche or i'd rather t- sleep late or yeah. you know, there's this sort of glib these glib responses and you know and, and on the other side of the spectrum it 's like well i don't want to contribute to overpopulation. I really challenge anybody. I'd like to know if there's anyone who truly wanted kids but didn't have them because of overpopulation.
0: That's, that's really kind of, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, but you know, it's like it, the thing about it too is that you know, yours is a totally valid position. But I feel like you must be so tired of people being like, "You'll change your mind," or "You're missing well." I'm something. old
1: enough now that they're starting to stop that. <laughs> that's one of the nice things. But
0: yeah, I have, and you know, I feel guilty of it a little bit too because I think it's hard for people who do have kids and who do have that powerful like like kind of superhuman love for their kids where you're like, you gotta, you gotta get a taste of this. Like you, how could you not want this? Right. Um, but then there's, there's also times where I'm like, Oh God, you get to go like, you know, I have a, a cousin and like he and his wife don't have kids. And like every time we look up, they're like traveling internationally and, They're like we're in. So they don't have dogs
1: either. Then they do. They they, they did get a couple
0: of dogs, but like (laughs) I kind of would find myself at like you know family holidays being like, you guys got you know when are you guys going to have a kid? Come on, like I I shouldn't do that. That's shitty.
1: I think it's natural. I I mean, I what I'm hoping is that you know over time, over maybe the next couple decades, the conversation can be reframed because I think that. This this kind of dynamic where parents and non-parents are adversaries is just so not useful. I, parents and non-parents are partners. I mean, the fact that I don't have children means that I can maybe help your child in a way. Like maybe I would influence your child. Maybe more children need to grow up knowing adults who are not people's parents. I grew up in a suburb where there was nobody older than than nobody younger than, four. you know, no, nobody between the ages of 18 and 40, basically. It's like, you were either a kid or you were a parent. Yeah. And I didn't know, I, I knew them when I when we lived in Austin, but I didn't know any adults that weren't someone's mom or dad. And I think that kids need to see that there's a lot of ways to live your life. Well, and, and there's
0: ways, of, I mean, there's ways of think, I mean, I think of like teaching and having students and feeling like in a way that those students are, I mean, those, those students are young people whose lives yeah. you touch deeply. And, like, that's another way to, you know, to not have a kid, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah.
1: And I, and yeah, I mean, I also want to be careful because it's not, obviously, I, I, I would never say, like, oh, my dog is my child. but Like, my dog is not my child. Right. I mean, I, I don't, you, I would not, if I had a child, I would not leave it, you know, for the entire day and leave a bowl of water on the floor <laughs> not, for it. Of okay. Course. You know, a um, bottle, maybe. I mean, when I got a little older. Yeah. Yeah. I, but, um, I, no, it's 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 a lot. It's you know, I don't, I don't think teaching is a is a substitute for having a child. But I guess for me, I'm not looking for a substitute. I, I it's not something I need. And I also recognize that I'm in the minority. I'm an outlier. Like most people want to have kids. And that's how it should be. But you, I is
0: there any chance that it could change? I mean, I guess there's At that, this I mean,
1: point, I don't think so. You don't but if it did, there are a lot of options. Yeah. I mean, my big fantasy is that my husband will get a call from someone who, who was his child that he didn't know about from like, you know, some one night stand 20 years ago. <laughs> that is my absolute dream.
0: Right. Yeah. It's all been done. Like the kids are yeah. old enough. Yeah. Yes.
1: I would like to have like a 20 year old.
0: There yeah. you go. So yeah. just the kid thing.
1: Yeah. I just don't, I don't think I would be a great mom. I, I just think the the way I think to be a parent, you have to have, sort of interact with the world in a, a, in a way that is more patient and perhaps more charitable that, that then comes naturally to me. And of course, you know, I, I'm sure that if I would should. develop those things. <laughs> and, <laughs> but you know, but I don't think people really do. It's like, I, you know, sometimes like uh, you think you're going to become a better person or a different kind of person from having some experience. And I, often you don't. I mean, a lot of what the book, this new book, The Unspeakable, is about is this this kind of tyranny of the redemption narrative and the idea that you're going to learn a lesson from some experience or you're going to change or there's going to be some epiphany. And sometimes there's just not. That, like, like, you- I'm
0: sitting here like, wanting them from you. I, can, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I have been, though. I mean, that's, that's something I think that like reflexively we want. I talked about reading the piece in The New Yorker and mm-hmm. it was like... I kept waiting for the like and then she adopted the foster boy. You know, that just Right. That's kind of But that impulse. because
1: we we are so conditioned uh you know, we're we're just raised on those kinds of stories.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And
1: it's not but that's not how life is. But maybe the epiphany is is accepting that and saying, "Well, this is this is who I am." Yeah. And and kind of honoring the uh, my, the worldview you were given.
0: My need for epiphanies. <laughs>
1: yeah, your need.
0: For- <laughs> So, uh, you, 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 know, you, talked about matricide, the essay, um, and how, you know, difficult relationship with your mother has maybe fueled your own views of uh, possible motherhood. Um, and then there's an essay in the book about, uh, your dog Rex. So mm-hmm. loss and grief also, an, you know, a, a yes. topic that you're addressing. Um, and I'm assuming not that like, there's no epiphanies to be gained there. I mean,
1: well, the Rex essay, the, the. Uh, you
0: know the, uh, one well, of tell people who Rex you know Oh Rex is yeah. was
1: is my late dog my soulmate
0: Yes yeah great dog okay. and i know something i mean i was showing you the yeah. painting of my dog Merlin Yeah who i feel similarly towards like it was a deep bond Oh
1: yeah i'm yeah Rex he and he you know he moved with me about 11 times like you know we, and he always
0: yeah was there he was
1: just yeah what kind he of was, dog Well, he was a mix. I actually tried to get one of those DNA tests, and it came back inconclusive. (laughs) He's so many things. Um, He was probably like a collie shepherd. He was about 85 pounds. He looked like a Bernese mountain dog. Great dog. Beautiful coloring, beautiful face. um, Yeah, long hair, just a a bear. Um, And yeah, he was very... He never barked. Now I have, you know two new dogs and they're like actual dogs they act like, like dogs like they bark I'm like yeah. what are you doing yes. what, what is this <laughs>
0: Rex didn't do this no Rex
1: didn't do it no Rex was very he's very easy mm. very calm and just and and you know I, and it's also the, the period of time when you have the dog I mean I had I, I got him in Nebraska when he was eight weeks old and I had him for 13 years and, and it was a time in my life where I was it was my entire thirties, basically, and that's an important time. and And so, it, I think it's not even just the dog; it's what he was to you during a particular period of your life.
0: Yes. Well, that's you know? the thing too. Like when you when I lost Merlin, it was like I felt like a. It, it's a signifier. Yes. Like, oh, I'm. It's like not only did he die, but like I'm dying a piece,
1: too. A piece. A, a part of your yeah. That chapter is closed. That
0: chapter's closed. closed. Time is passing. Yes. You know, and like people who are dog people or cat people or whatever, you do sort of like. They're kind of like marking uh, posts, marking yeah. steps. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. You sort of mark the passage of time by you know what, like the era of certain pets. But yeah. it's interesting how certain dogs, you know, for people who've had multiple pets over the years, like there's always like one, one maybe two if you're lucky, who really likes you know they really get you. And I, maybe it's the the time in your life when you have them. I think it has a lot. To and he was with,
1: my first dog. Was was Merlin your
0: first dog? My my first just mine. just yours. I grew yeah. up with dogs, right. but like, you know, Merlin was, I got him when I was 20.
1: Yeah. So oh, yeah. We
0: kind of grew up together, you know? Yeah. And yeah. he was like really smart and good dog. Yeah. You know? So, oh. but, um, and then you write about losing your mother, um, you know, with whom you had a difficult relationship. Um, that's obviously an intense experience, you know, like, do you, like I guess like the popular narrative, the epiphany driven you know, world that we live in or whatever, where we kind of want these clean resolutions. We want to have these moments of insight mm-hmm. as I imagine it, because it's something that every child I think dreads or most children dread, you know, is the loss of a parent. But then when you're actually confronted with it and you face it, you know, what you'll read about a lot of times in magazines or you'll hear about. On talk shows or whatever is that like it was actually, there was a lot of beauty to the experience or
1: people post on Facebook yeah. about, about how they had this you know, Spiritual. amazing, you know, amazing and, deathbed
0: moment yeah, and no
1: my family is so sort of emotionally um, I'm not even going to say distant, it's like we really just did not have any sentimentality um, and and the book is a, in in many ways about about sentimentality and and its discontents, so I guess you know when my mother got sick, um,
0: and she got sick with uh, gallbladder she had
1: gallbladder can- cancer, which is very rare, uh-huh. but it's very bad. It's it's basically in the same Panc- category as like pancreatic cancer. Right. Yeah, um, you know, and we had this. You know, my mother was somebody who was had a horrible relationship with her own mother and was sort of damaged by her own mother in ways that I'll probably never understand. But my mother had a sort of hard time locating her true self And um, ways that I talk more about in the piece. But but she just was kind of different ways with different people, and you never really were sure what was genuine and what was, you know, she, you always had this sense that she was sort of acting. Um, and so when she got sick and had this life-and-death situation, she just really didn't know how to be, because you've got something where you... If that's really happening. Yeah. And if you are somebody who's sort of putting on airs all over the place, it's really difficult. And so then you add to this, this, you know, th- this mother-daughter relationship that never really gelled because of that reason and other reasons. Um, and you have to go through the motions of caring for somebody and and then accepting that they're dying. It's really difficult. Like, how are you supposed to have this, this big seminal profound experience with somebody who your relationship just feels I counterfeit is too strong a word, but it just, it feels, um, sort of put on in, in a way. So, but so, I think, uh, I,
0: I mean, I, I just interrupt for a second because yeah. I think like, you know, it's always, there's different degrees of it, but I, I, I feel like most children probably feel like they don't know their parents all that well. And right. maybe later in life you do like, I mean, in best case scenario, um, I guess in best case scenario, your whole life, you feel like you know them, and it's like this intimate relationship.
1: I think some people do. I mean, some mothers and daughters are like really entwined. I guess so. Calling each other every day kind of thing. Yeah. And, and you know.
0: My sister's like that with my mom. Yeah. You know.
1: Um, so, yeah. And so, you know, in, in, in going through that experience, I mean, I became really interested in sort of the, the things that we expect of the dying and the things that we expect of the loved ones of the dying. There was all this pressure to kind of behave a certain way. I mean, I remember when the, um, when the oncologist, my mother was in the hospital and, and the oncologist came in and, you know, f- this was the news, like the treatment's not working anymore. You know, this, this is it. this is the end, like we're, we're, you're going to die. And I remember I took my mother's hand, in, you know, I, I, I took her hand and I, and I held it. And I, I did that because I thought that if I didn't, the oncologist would just totally judge us and even maybe think that I wasn't capable of taking care of her. And my mother like didn't even really reciprocate. It was really awkward. Like that's not, we weren't, we didn't, we, we didn't touch each other a lot. Like we just didn't have that kind of relationship. And so, yeah, there were a lot of moments like that. And then as she got sicker and sicker, I would try to like say, you know, are you, what are you thinking about? Like, what is death you know, what is it like? And are you, and, you know, she would start hallucinating and, and, you know, what are you seeing? And, and this kind of stuff. And, and there's just no answer. It's like, I was putting pressure on her to sort of like, give me something, like, tell me what's, tell me what's out there. Right, you know? right. And, and, you know, at one point I said something like, oh, you know, maybe, you know, because we had no, no religion at all. But I, I said something like, you know, And I do actually think about this. Like you know, so reincarnation—like it doesn't really make any logical sense. But but of all the things you're going to think about, like to me, it is sort of compelling because some people clearly have older souls than other people. You know. And I said, well, you know, maybe you know, it's, maybe you'll have a whole new life or something, and 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 you know, and she said, well, I don't, I don't want to. She goes, she said, I don't want to be a baby again, you know. She <laughs> <laughs> and she was genuinely concerned. <laughs> and then I said, I some like I said, like, well, maybe you'll be a bird and you can fly around. And it's just like I say in the piece, you know, we expect the dying to get excited about the idea of being a bird, right. and that is just so. Unfair! What a burden! Yeah. But it's a burden—no pun intended. Right, right, right. Oh, yes, it's a burden in the hand. Um, but so, so it's sort of like these, these societal uh, conventions that then become uh, expectations that are really uh, just a tyranny in a way.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and tough stuff to write about. And like, I admire you for being able to do it because I think most of us who've tried writing have tried doing just that. It's not as easy as it looks when you read it when it's done well.
1: Well, thank you. So kudos
0: to you. And uh, (laughs) I've enjoyed talking with you. Oh, likewise. I appreciate you coming over and... I'm surprised I haven't crossed paths with you before in Los Angeles. I know. Some sort of well, there, you
1: live—you live—you know—in a different neighborhood.
0: Right. Well, that's it in Los Angeles. Might as well be a different state, right? <laughs> yeah. It took
1: me. Uh, it took me. You know, more than 20 minutes to come here. So I mean, no time. wonder. Probably, we'll probably never see each other again.
0: <laughs> well, it was nice knowing you. Yeah. Then. Good
1: luck to you. Thanks
0: for coming over. Thank you. It's fun. Okay, folks. There we go. That's Megan Dom. What a great time that was talking with her. Her new essay collection is called The Unspeakable. And uh, it's out there now from FSG. Go get your copy. Go get it right now. Megan can be found online at megandom.com. Her Twitter handle is at Megan underscore Dom. And uh, that's Megan with an H. You know what I mean. M-E-G-H-A-N. Thank you to Kill Rockstars. As always, for the good music, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. This podcast has an app. Do you have the app? What's wrong with you? Get the app. The app is free. It's the Other People app. It's the best way to listen to this program. Do you realize that? So it's available for your uh, iPhone. It's available for your Android device. You get the app onto your device. And then the most recent 50 episodes of this program will be there waiting for you for free. And uh, you can stream them right there on your device. You can download them to listen to offline if you're not uh, in a Wi-Fi zone. And best of all, best of all, you can sign up for premium right there within the app so you can stream everything, get access to the full archives. And uh, support the show for a mere pittance. It's very cheap. If you sign up for a year, it's like 75 cents a month. That's right, 75 cents a month. Can you afford that? Please? Please? Uh, if you want to email me, once again, the letter or the uh, email address is letters at com. It was great uh, hearing from Mike today. I like that letter. And uh, getting visuals on listeners. So send me more letters like that. Let me know what's going on out there. And uh, I am still a little bit groggy and freaked out by the fact that my entire family, I didn't mention this, but uh, I said that I took a nap. Uh, th- the, the truth is that my entire family took a nap. <laughs> Including the dog. Uh, We were all in the same bed. Not the dog. I don't do dogs in beds. I'm not one of those people. That's disgusting. Put your dog on the floor. But uh, my entire family slept in the same bed. My wife, my daughter, and I. Which is a first. And uh, I don't know what that means. Were we uh, roofied? Are we uniquely exhausted? What's wrong with us? Is there carbon monoxide happening? I don't know what's going on. But we slept for uh, a good couple of hours together in bed uh, in the afternoon please remember that uh, Diogenes said that Plato talked too much and that Charles Dickens was known to take astonishingly long manic daily walks of up to 25 miles that's it for now thanks again to Megan Dom. go get her book it's a good one and uh, thanks to you guys as always for listening I appreciate it and I will be back in a couple of days with another Uh, program for you another conversation with another author so okay i think that's it for today and uh, i'm now going to uh i think i'm going to go out it's a saturday i'm recording this the day before it rolls out it's a saturday night i'm going out tonight what do you think of that we got a babysitter shit is going down i'm gonna eat dinner in a restaurant i'm gonna fall asleep in a movie theater i don't give a shit (laughs)